Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Hello, everybody. Good to see you. I'm Nate, if I haven't met you, and I'm so happy that you came to church. Everybody online, thanks for joining us. Really happy you're here as well. Hey, um, we're between series. We finished a series last week, and typically we do series around here because I think it helps us to engage deeply with the text and gives us some time to mull over and think about thematic um, elements of the scripture. But being between... I was kind of happy. We're going to start something, Psalm 23, coming up soon. But I thought, hey, I wanted to give us a little bit of perspective on the future um, as individuals. And then also just kind of a, what is God doing right now? Has anybody noticed that the world's a little weird? Okay, I thought maybe you had. And I had an experience last week. I had 30 pastors from... Well, most of them were from Washington and Idaho and Montana, and we gathered together for a training event. We got to host them, and it dawned on me that here in Montana, if you're in Montana, I know some of you are watching from different places, but we, we have it fairly easy. And especially as I sat with the pastors from Washington, I had a lot of these people I've known for a lot of years, and like I could feel the stress, it was palpable. Their churches have not been able to gather together for approaching seven months now. All the cultural upheaval, they've had forest fires, all this that's been going on. And I am typically uh, pretty positive. Like you give me a challenge and I'm like, yeah, like let's do this. And I like, I, I realized, you know what? Part of me is feeling a little discouraged too. Part of me kind of misses what was and then there's so much that's up in the air about what will be. We don't know how long this is going to go on. Our realities have changed. Things are awkward and different. Here's an example. I sat down with a group of people a couple of weeks ago. And we were planning for Christmas. It was one of our Christmas planning meetings. And we're trying to figure out what to do in the, what we've worked out with the county in terms of seating capacity. We, we calculated and we realized this, to host the same amount of people this year, as we did last year, we would need to offer 28 services. And I was like, oh, I don't think we can do 28 services. That doesn't make sense. And, you know, it just made me miss. Like, I love it when, you know, especially during Christmas, there's this beautiful tradition of people who aren't even sure what they believe will come to church. And we gather together, celebrate the birth of Jesus. And what are we going to do this year? And it's going to have to be so much different. And so those are the type of things that we miss, some of the freedoms, some of the normalcy. And I think we can get a little bit despondent and we can begin to wonder, like, what is happening? Is like, are we just on hold until all of this passes? And I, I'd like to share with you from a passage of scripture in the book of Acts chapter 11. Okay, the book of Acts chapter 11 that has just been resonating with me probably the last 10 or 12 days. And it's a passage of scripture that I've read a lot. You probably, if you've been around, you've probably heard me teach or reference this passage in the past. But as I read it, it just, it took my, my level of, of hope and just brought it through the roof. It just made me think, wait a minute, we're in touch with the God of the universe 
and he's doing okay. Did you know God's not in quarantine? Isn't that good news? He's not like, oh God, I can't wait to get back out there with him. No, God is alive and active. Uh, Jesus made a promise to his disciples 2,000 years ago as they sat in this place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's just a, a religious place with all kinds of history. There's a temple there to the Roman emperor where they worship him as God. There's a temple, the temple of the dancing goats where they worship uh, Pan, the ancient Greek God. And then there's a really old, thousands of years old temple where they worship Baal and he was a fertility God and they would make sacrifices. And Jesus is sitting in this place and he asks his disciples a question. He says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, you know, different opinions. Some people say that you're one of the old prophets who's come back. Some people say you're John the Baptist, reincarnated. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Peter clears his throat. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. And he says, here's who you are. You are the Christ, which was a formal term, meaning the anointed or promised one. The son of the living God. And Jesus responds this way. He looks at Peter and he says, that statement, what you just spoke that I am the Christ, I'm the son of God. He said, on that rock, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus made a promise 2000 years ago that he would build his church and the gates of hell, the gates that try to keep people in separation from God, keep them in bondage and brokenness. Jesus said, my church is going to break down. The church I build will break down the gates of hell and release captives over and over. And then for the last 2,000 years, you could study church history. The church has done things well. The church has made mistakes. But through it all, Jesus has continued to build his church. And he will be building his church in the year 2020, in the year 2021, and on and on and on. So what do we have to look Look forward to. There's a lot I don't know. There's a lot you don't know. But there are a few things that we know. And I want to read this passage from Acts chapter 11. We're going to read it in two sections. And there are just six things that excite me about the future as we go back. One of the things I love about the Bible is this is the book. I, I know some of us are spiritually unresolved. You're not sure what you think about this. And I, I respect that process. But this is the book where I believe Whenever I'm a little disoriented in life, God in his kindness and goodness has given me something to base my life, my hope, my perspective on. And that's exactly what this passage has done. So let's read together from Acts chapter 11. And we're going to begin right at verse, there we go, 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen... Let me pause there for just a moment. So you can read about this in Acts chapter 7. There is a man named Saul. And Saul is a Jewish leader. He is highly educated. And he, as the disciples of Jesus begin to grow and increase, this is the first decade of the early church, he is so vehemently opposed to people living traditional, leaving traditional Judaism and following Jesus that he organizes and executes a plan to destroy the early followers of Jesus. So he, we know he arrests people, he throws them in prison, he's tearing families apart, he's doing everything he can to persecute and squelch the early church. And eventually it leads to this. In Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen, one of the early church leaders, is executed. He's the first martyr that we know of for, uh, for in the Christian faith. 
And Paul is behind that. So this persecution happens. And what, what happens to the church? Remember this word. They scatter. They scatter because they're no longer safe. They've been fairly comfortable. And now they begin to move to different places. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. His early disciples were all Jewish. Judaism was an exclusive group. They, they like, you didn't interact. There were two people. If you were Jews, there were two classifications of people. There were Jews and Gentiles. And Gentiles were considered a pollutant. If you had to do a business transaction with a Gentile, a non-Jew, you had to ritually cleanse yourself afterwards because they were considered a pollutant, okay? And so the early church, like it never dawned on them that Jesus came for more than just Jewish people. The early church was just Jewish, but there were some of them, we do not have their names, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, one of these cities where Christians had fled, spoke to the Hellenists also. These are people who are culturally Greek and they begin to like bridge out, preaching, here's their message, the Lord Jesus and, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, let's pause there. Let's talk a little bit about this. So part of why I think we get to be excited about whatever the future looks like is this. Is that the first church, this church in Antioch, okay, one of the first expressions of the church was a church filled with anonymous, extraordinarily, extraordinary, effective, creative people. The first people who took the church outside of Judaism, we don't even know their names. They were not leaders in the church. They were just certain individuals. And here's what they did. As they fled, like Jerusalem's not safe, they go north to Antioch. When they come to Antioch, they begin to interact with people and they realize, oh my goodness, there, there are all these people who are non-Jewish who live in the city of Antioch. I wonder, I wonder if what Jesus came to earth to do was for them as well. Could it be? Long before the church leadership gets a hold of this, they take this massive step and move the church forward into brand new territory and begin to speak to non-Jewish people about who Jesus is. And there is this incredible response. We read a great number of people began to believe. So one of the, one of the most fascinating things about this book, the New Testament in particular, it teaches this. This is the theological term we use. It's the priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers. So think of any religious system. Okay, not just Christianity. Basically, they all would say this, that here are the masses, okay? Here's just normal people, and God is way over here, okay? And so what religions do is you create some sort of class of people that are go-betweens. They're more highly trained. They have uh, spiritual sensitivity. And so you call them what? priests, priestesses, prophets, prophetesses. They're people that stand between you and God and they, what do they do? They broker the relationship. Okay, you need this? Okay, let me talk to the gods for you. Oh God, you need this for the people? Let me tell the people. This is just typical. 
One of the radical things about this New Testament is this, is Peter gets a hold of this, Paul gets a hold of this, Jesus emphasizes this, is he says, in this new dynamic, what Jesus has done through his life, his death, and his resurrection is he has made it possible for human beings, not just a select group, not just some hierarchy of church leadership, for human beings to move into relationship with God. It doesn't matter about your level of education. You don't need to have been to seminary. You don't need to be ordained, any of those things. And so when the church has been at its very best is when it's filled with creative, anonymous, effective people who realize, hey, I'm on mission. I am a representative of God. I actually am in relationship with my creator and I get to work on his behalf in this world. Now this, I'll, I'll be very frank, this has been a problem for the church. Because guess what? If you stand in the middle between God and people, it's kind of a nice place to be. People need you. People might pay you to be in this position. Let me give you an example, Martin Luther. So many of us would be familiar with the Reformation that happens and Martin Luther is one of the kingpins behind it. This is a literal journal entry from Martin Luther. He has been in um, theological training for eight years. He's a trained Catholic priest. And so deeply educated in tradition, all of these things. One of his journal entries, he says this. He says, today I entered a strange new world and it has forever changed me. You know what the strange new world was? For the first time in his life, after eight years of theological education, he read the New Testament. The church structure was you're, you're, you're trained how to be the priest. And the scriptures, this was church tradition at the time, these are so profound, so dangerous, so difficult to understand that it would only be written in one language, Latin, which really no one spoke anymore, just the church hierarchy, right? So we're the only people to understand the book. Therefore, we get to tell people who God is and what he expects. And Luther reads the New Testament for his first time after eight years of theological training. And he realizes, he comes to this conclusion of the priesthood of all believers. And he realizes, oh my goodness, I'm in a structure that has gotten it all wrong. I'm in a structure that says there's a difference between the masses and the priests and the connection with God. I missed out that what Jesus did is he brought us all into this new relationship. So as the church is deeply offended, the church hierarchy, they try to kill him, he hides. And you know what he does the whole time he hides? Over a period of about two and a half, three years. He takes, because he's trained, he takes the Latin and he translates the New Testament into German. And not, not into any German, into street level German that any German who was literate could begin to understand. And he realized that the finest thing that I can do is for people to get a hold of this book and to begin to realize who they are and to begin to realize that it's not just about church leadership and it's not just about people who have titles. It's about just people who said, I belong to Jesus, I'm following him. I'm in connection with him. I am his emissary. I am his hands and feet and mouthpiece in this world. And that ladies and gentlemen is in large part what launched the first reformation. It was this idea that we can create systems 
where it's the church who has to decide what's new and new, new creative ideas come out of the church. This is my hope for the future. As I read this passage about Antioch, I pray that the best new ideas to see God's work done on planet earth do not come through me or through our staff. But they come from somebody who's watching right now, somebody who's sitting in the room right now, that you realize, wait a minute, I am a priest, a priestess. I am authorized. I have been given everything I need. Let's figure out this new reality. Let's figure out what the world might look like, what, what church might look like in the days ahead. And that there would be nothing within church leadership that would say, wait a minute. We just say, you go, you go. A church that is filled with anonymous, okay? Anonymous, creative, effective leaders. People who step forward and say, I am the church. Here's the second thing that I learned from this passage that we read. They had a focused message, okay, a focused message. So when these guys came to Antioch, um, we don't know exactly what they said. All we know is this, is the, the author, Luke, Luke says, they preached the Lord Jesus. We read that and it's not a big phrase, but that is a really big deal if you live in the first century. That is saying this, that Jesus wasn't just a new prophet, that Jesus wasn't just a new idea, that he didn't just bring a new system of morality. They said he is the Lord Jesus. So they began to introduce to Greek people in the Roman Empire this idea that Jesus is God, that what Jesus did upon the cross is so important. They, they begin to just speak about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Every church, okay, every church, there are so many things that we could talk about. I, you know what? I have so many opinions about a lot of things. But my job is not to speak to you about my personal opinions. The job of the church is to preach the Lord Jesus. Not important, but auxiliary issues. And here's what I believe. If we can do this, if we can preach the Lord Jesus and not get distracted by all the things that are important out there, but don't have to do with the good news, the good news of who Jesus is, that the good news of Jesus, the Lord Jesus is attractive today. It is the hope of the world. I've traveled all over the world. I've been in cultures that I can't even fathom. I can't understand. I've been in Papua New Guinea. I've been in South America, tribal groups. And here's all, if I just talk about Jesus, they get it. They get it. If I start talking about my culture and what it means to be an American, they don't need that. You know what everybody needs? They need a savior. And if we can just keep our message focused on the Lord Jesus, that's where you see change. Here's the third thing. Simple phrase that we read. It said that they went to Antioch. They went to Antioch. There's this process of going. Now, Jesus' last words to his followers were, go into all the world. They're all centered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is very, very comfortable. It's their culture. They are meeting in homes. They're meeting in the temple courts. It's just familiar. And up to this point, guess what the church hadn't done? They hadn't gone anywhere. The church will always tend to say in a safe place, and Jesus asked us to leave our comfort. He asked us to leave our convenience. And what caused these people to finally leave? Luke calls it, they were scattered. 
persecution, opposition. If they weren't willing to leave, the Lord said, well, now that Stephen's dead, you guys are scared and you're leaving. That's what started the church in Antioch. So what if, what if, what if the church being scattered right now, what if God is going to use this to leverage his kingdom? Because the church is scattered. 60% of the people who are joining us right now are not in the room. You, looking in the camera, you are the scattered church. You're in living rooms. You are sitting down in front of TVs. Later in the week, you're going to be sitting in front of a computer. And you're watching here in Montana. You're watching in different places. And you just, we can't come back in and do the same things we did. Everything's modified. What if, what if in God's economy, he said, what if the best thing we could do for them right now is to scatter them and start a campus wherever you are currently watching this? That the hands and feet, the, the emissary of Jesus is there, not all just in one room. Example, as communism came to power in China, they, they, they identified a problem. The problem was Christianity. They said, Christianity, we can't have it. So what do they do? With force, they try to persecute the Christians. Most of the Christians were located in just a few large cities, very few of them. And so Communist officials came in. We're going to arrest leaders. We're going to put people in prison. We're going to bulldoze over their churches. We're just going to take care of it. We'll wipe it out. So it's like they're trying to put out a fire. And the more they try to put out the fire, guess what happens in China? People run for their lives. And wherever they go, they take their conviction that Jesus is actually the son of God. And they tell more people. And the more China tries to oppose, the more the message spreads. The more scattered the church becomes, the more effective the church becomes. And today you have millions and millions of disciples of Jesus in China. What if God's going to use all of this to disrupt us in the best possible way, to scatter us so that we could actually be more effective what if he's shaking us a little bit out of our convenience and comfort so that we engage with this global reality of saying, I'm going to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. One more thing. One of the hallmarks of the church in Antioch is that they were effective. They were effective. We're going to read this twice, actually. It says, and a great number of people believed they weren't just a church that had absolutely no impact on Antioch. They were actually this incredibly effective group of people. And like large quantities of people begin to turn to Jesus. There's growth. They celebrated this. You know, one of my favorite things about this church, I've had pastors here visiting with me and they'll ask me this. Everyone's asked me this when there's a baptism, um, not this service, but the previous service we had a baptism. And they'll ask me to say, how do you get everybody to clap so loudly every time somebody comes out of the baptismal tank? And I look at him, I go, I have no idea. I've never coached it. There's not like planted clappers in the audience. Like I said, I just think the people are super excited when somebody new says, I'm in. Like I'm buried with Jesus. I'm resurrected with Jesus. And we spontaneously celebrate because we believe it. We're not just called to take up a spot in our community. 
We're called to change the world, and so we celebrate that. And into the future, let's not think that something that's happened at a global level, any pandemic, is going to ever make the church less effective. Let's anticipate that the Jesus who said, I'm going to build my church, is going to keep building his church. And what if we could see more people come into harmony with Jesus Christ than ever before in our history? What if there was growth? What if there was discipleship in our lives? What if personally we were developing step by step and a great number of people are changed? Now let's go back to the text. I, I want to pick up. Um, we're going to begin at verse 22. Verse 22. I have two more things to point out from this section. So news of this, meaning what's happening in Antioch, non-Jewish people following Jesus, reached the church in Jerusalem, the headquarters of the church. And they sent Barnabas. Now, you translate his name, Barnabas means son of encouragement. So he's an encourager. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, you got to go see what's happening up there. We've never heard about this before. We don't even know who's leading this. Like, what is going on when, they, when he saw the grace of God had done? He saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And here we see it again, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Now, if we went on to read, if you followed this church in Antioch in the book of Acts, it is going to be the first church that sends out missionaries. They're going to send out, after this year of Paul and Barnabas being there, they're going to send out missionaries. Churches are going to be planted. They're going to fund missionaries. This church is literally, like no kidding, they're going to be important in the future of Christianity. And they're going to change the globe through their efforts. So two more things I'd like to point out. We just have to deal with this phrase. A church where the grace of God is visible. So Barnabas is sent by the people in Jerusalem. They say, you've got to go figure out what's going on. Because we hear that non-Jewish people, we hear there's no like endorsed leadership. And what is going on up there? Is it authentic? And when Barnabas comes up to Antioch, he looks around and what does he see? He sees the grace of God. What does that mean? One of my favorite phrases in all the New Testament. Because if I asked you right now, I said, would you quickly draw me a picture of the grace of God? Show me what the grace of God looks like. I wouldn't even know where to begin, right? What does the grace of God look like? And then there's this other phrase that I think helps us to understand. Barnabas saw that the hand of God was at work in their midst, in their community. Here's what I think the grace of God looks like. It's when supernatural things are happening in people's lives. When people who have constantly been in conflict, constantly dealt with depression, constantly dealt with anxiety and fear, when marriages have consistently been troubled, when people have dealt with all kinds of problems, suddenly when God comes in, there's freedom, there's restoration, there's newness. When people who have always been afraid that they haven't done enough, they haven't been religious enough, moral enough, and they're afraid that if God showed up today, he'd strike them dead. When they realize that 
it's the work of Jesus on the cross that connects me with God and they now stand in confidence before God, that's the grace of God at work. It's the hand of the Lord. And as I look towards our future, we could, we could do everything right. We could make all the right decisions. We could plan like crazy. But if it is just up to us and our best efforts, it's not gonna be enough. I think we're in a position where Antioch was at. Just say, God, there, there's a persecution down south. There's trouble in the waters. This is a fearful time. God, would you do more than we could ever imagine? Would the supernatural work of God be evident in this room, in every room where everyone is watching this, in every neighborhood, in every state? God, would you do more than we could even dream or anticipate? Because this isn't about us doing more and trying harder. This is about us saying, God, we are positioned, we are open. Would you do things that we could never imagine? Would you build your church in the midst of our current reality? Let's see the grace of God at work. Let's see the hand of God shaping and changing us. And here's the last thing. I'm just going to call it this. Looking for the next Saul. Okay, looking for the next Saul. So as Barnabas comes and he sees great numbers, hundreds, thousands, we don't know. But Barnabas looks out and you know what they didn't have? They didn't have a New Testament yet. <laughs> We're, we're just a few years after Jesus has died. And they don't have anybody in the room who's one of the church leaders. It's just a, a, a bunch of people. And, and so as Barnabas looks around, he goes, this is legitimate. God is doing something supernatural here. He's like, I need some help. And you know who he thinks about? He thinks about a guy named Saul. Saul is the very guy who had helped to kill Stephen. The very guy that had helped to spark the Christians fleeing Jerusalem. Now here's what happened to Saul. You can read about it in Acts chapter nine, just two chapters before. Saul, he's going to destroy the church. He's passionate about it. And he comes face to face with a blinding light. He's knocked backwards. And he's like, who are you? What are you doing? And the voice goes, it's me, Jesus, the one you're trying to persecute. Saul's like, yeah, maybe that's a bad idea. His life is radically transformed. He says, I'm in. He goes from being the one who's opposing the church to the one who tries to build the church. And guess what? He goes and he finds a local church, a gathering of believers in Jesus. And he says, hey guys, I've changed teams. I know, I know, I put your families in prison and all that. But now, like, I, I, I'm on the Jesus team. And you know what the church says? Take a hike. Like, we don't trust you. Are you trying to infiltrate us? There's no way. So Saul, Paul, he's going to be called Paul eventually, has just been languishing on the sidelines. Nobody trusts him. Nobody believes in him. Like, no way, man. You've done too much damage. It takes a Barnabas who says, let's give somebody a second chance. Hey, that guy that kind of wrecked the church, that guy that was behind Stephen being killed, I believe in a God who's big enough to radically transform somebody's life. I'm going to go find him. So he travels to Tarsus. And all we know about Saul is that he's, he's been taught by Jesus. He's just been hanging out, not effective whatsoever with the church. And Barnabas says, Saul, you're not going to believe what's happening in Antioch. 
There's people who are Greek and they're turning to Jesus. This thing's exploding. The hand of God is at work. I saw the grace of God. Saul, would you join me? Like, we need to teach these people. We need to help mature them. Saul, I imagine, said, no, like, I, I've done too much damage. My past disqualifies me. Nobody will listen to me. And Barnabas says, you just come with me. They go back to Antioch. And for a full year, they teach the church. And the church rises to the level of maturity and development where they send out Saul and Barnabas one year later to plant churches and spread the good news message of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. One of the things that we can become a little bit despondent about is the future. Like what's going to happen? I read this and I just think, Lord, help us to see the next Saul's. Maybe her name's Paula. I don't know. Paula, Paula, whatever it is. But people who maybe we think, no, not them. See, God had this plan for Paul. God had this plan that one day he was going to write about one third of the New Testament. You know what it took for Paul to find his destiny? It took a guy named Barnabas who said, I'm going to take a risk on a leader. And you know what? From this point on, Barnabas diminishes in the New Testament. We read very little about him. And just this one opportunity that Barnabas gives him, Saul is going to now lead the church. He's going to change the world. And it all was because some guy named Barnabas said, I think God has his hand on Saul's life. What might God be doing in the future that I can't even currently anticipate? What if, what if because of who God is, because Jesus continues to build his church, the best days are still ahead of us? I actually believe that. I believe that because God is good. I believe that our finest days as a church, as followers of Jesus, are still in front of us. What if we could look around and say, who's up next? Who do we get to send out? Who gets to train? Who needs a second chance? What if there is a generation that is coming after us? Okay, now, we, like I feel young still. My, parent, my kids assure me that I'm not. But I still feel young. What if 20 years from now, we opened doors, we made opportunities in the church that is one day, is so far advanced from where we're at. They are so more effective. They are incredibly passionate. And it's all because we said, we're excited about the future. This is a church where we give people second chances. This is a church where we don't put lids on people's leadership. This is a church where we believe in the priesthood of all believers. This is a church where the hand of God is at work. And so we're always gonna need help because new people are coming to Jesus, left and right, you go. Here's something I love. Hebrews says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything that is changing around us, Jesus doesn't. And that Jesus said he is going to build the church. By the way, it will never be a goal. We will, no hint of it that we're here to build a big church. Not at all. We are here to build big people. 
Because you could have a big church numerically and make absolutely no impact on the world. But if you had a church with big people, mature, loving, sacrificial people, that's how the world's changed. That's how we actually carry out the message and the ministry of Jesus. I'm looking forward to the future. I can't tell you what it's going to be, but I know the author of the church, and he is not done writing the story. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we look towards the future, there is a great deal of uncertainty. The only thing consistent is you. So, Lord, would you, would you be at work in our midst? As we are scattered, would you leverage this for good? Lord, I pray that in homes right now, I pray in this room, I pray in other states, that the hand of God would be at work and the grace of God would be evident in all of our neighborhoods, our cul-de-sacs, even in our church building, that miracles would happen, that you would raise up new generations of leaders. Lord, that we would stay focused on the primary message and that we would be filled with hope because you're the author of the church and you are not even close to being done with the story that you're writing and we wanna be a part of it. Now I want to pause for a moment and anybody, you're, you're, you're watching online, you're in the room and you want to be a part of the Jesus story. I'm not asking, do you want to, will you acknowledge that Jesus historically existed? That's, that's not what I'm asking. Are you ready to surrender yourself? Are you ready to say, I am not king. I am not queen. I need Jesus to be my savior. If that's you, will you just repeat this prayer after me? Jesus, I surrender to you. You are Lord of my life. Take my failures from the past. You paid for them on the cross and resurrect me. Amen. Amen. Hey, if that was you, if you prayed that, okay, if you're online, I want you to click the button right next to you. And we want to get a Bible in your hand to help you get started. If you're in the room, head to the atrium there, either the Welcome Center or the I Have Decided table. I want to get a Bible in your hand to help you grow. Everybody else, look forward to the future. Be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus and go scatter. God bless you, your love. See you next week. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.